you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, as we continue our series in the book of Revelation. And today we are looking at the faithful church, the faithful church, Revelation chapter 3, and the uh, passage will be on the screen as well. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world to those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to understand it by your Spirit. And then, Lord, help us to apply it, to live it out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the letters to the seven churches, we've seen Jesus give a commendation. And then uh, the churches there are probably feeling like, that's great. Wow, we're, we're doing really good. But then there was the but. <laughs> but I have this against you, the rebuke. And so far, only the church at Smyrna escaped the dreaded rebuke. And now we come to the church of Philadelphia on the heels of hearing the rebuke against the church of Sardis. Maybe they were bracing as well for the rebuke. But it is all praise for this faithful church in Philadelphia. And just to give you a little bit of background here about the church of Philadelphia, you may be wondering, who's that guy on the right? He looks kind of familiar. That's me, and that's the ruins of Philadelphia there in ancient Turkey. And uh, this was about 20 years ago. I was 20, 20 years younger, 20 pounds lighter. And uh, there I was preaching, giving a little devotional, the Philadelphian in the, at the Church of Philadelphia there in ancient Turkey. The, 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 the city of Philadelphia was a small city. It was an important city for trade. Uh, it was a, a place where there was many earthquakes. Matter of fact, the city was leveled, almost completely demolished about 180 years before Jesus was born. It was rebuilt in 17 AD. And then the king who had it rebuilt named the city, renamed the city Philadelphia in honor of his brother who was nicknamed Philadelphus, one who loves his brother because this brother had shown such love to his brother, the king. And so it's named Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And bonus, if you're from the city of Philadelphia, what might you be called? Philadelphian, which is much better than a sardine, as 
Brother Timothy taught us about the church at Sardis. So they weren't sardines, they were Philadelphians. And so that was the bonus that they had there. And like the church of Smyrna, they were in a very difficult situation. They were in a very tough culture. They were surrounded by pagans on the one hand, pagans who engaged in the emperor cult. They, they said Caesar is Lord. They worshiped the false gods. They engaged in sacrifices to those gods and sexual immorality related to that. And so you couldn't get a job if you didn't confess that Caesar was Lord. So they're surrounded. There's that side, but also there was a robust Jewish community there, just like in Smyrna, that was, that was very zealous and were, giving, were persecuting the Christians there. This, this community of Jewish uh, uh, people there at, that was hostile to Christianity. But th this church, to this church, Jesus says it has little power. They stood their ground. They were faithful witnesses in the midst of that culture where they were hated by everybody and people were intentionally going out to cause trouble for them, to make life difficult for them. And so Jesus now comes and he encourages them to persevere. Persevere in your witness because he, Jesus, is the Holy One. Jesus is the true one. He's the one who opens and closes the door to his kingdom. In other words, he is the one who is in his sovereignty, pours out his amazing grace to save sinners as he sees fit. And so the main idea we're going to look at this morning is because Jesus is the Holy One who opens the door to his kingdom, we must persevere in our witness to the world. Four points we're going to see. The first point here we see, as with all the letters, first a description of Jesus. Jesus, as we see, normally goes back to the first chapter, chapter 1, where we see these descriptions of Jesus. He's the one with eyes like flame, like fire, and feet like burnished bronze and so on. Here, he doesn't draw from chapter 1, but we could say the things that he uses here to describe himself could really be said to sum up all the things that you find in chapter 1. And he assigns titles to himself, as he has throughout, that can only be made to apply to God himself or to God's Messiah. And so the first thing he says is, he says he is the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. That's reference to God himself. The Psalms use this to talk about God as the Holy One, Psalm 89. Psalm 16 uses it to refer to the Messiah. Then in Isaiah, we see, we saw it in our call to worship, Isaiah 43, how it speaks of, of Yahweh as the Holy One of Israel. A couple other passages, Isaiah 41, 14, fear not, fear not. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. And then Isaiah 48, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you the prophet, who leads you in the way you should go. And so we see here how he connects that as well to the idea that the Holy One is their Savior, their Redeemer. And what, what a great word of encouragement this would be for the church of Philadelphia as they're going out and declaring the word, fear not. They're going to need to know that. Why? Because he's the Holy One. He's the Redeemer, right? He's the one who leads you in the way that you should go. 
He's opening the doors. And so they're going to hear these things and be encouraged. And they're going to think right away of these passages in Isaiah. Why is that? Well, because at this time in redemptive history, we would suspect that a lot of the New Testament was finished, but they also had the Old Testament scriptures, which were clearly in mind at this time. And then Jesus says that he is the true one. Again, that can only be described of God himself. Jesus assigns it to himself. He's the true one. As the Nicene Creed says, he is God of very God, light of very light. As he says in John 14, 6, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And then he says that he is the key of David. The key of David. This key of David, this phrase key of David here, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Why does Jesus say that? Well, he's quoting again from Isaiah, Isaiah 22, 22. And Isaiah 22 speaks of how Messiah, it, it prophesies of the time when Messiah would come basically to establish the kingdom on earth. He then, Jesus, is the, the one to which that prophecy pointed to. He is the true Messiah. Jesus is the true son of David. Jesus is the true king whose kingdom endures forever. Jesus opens the door to those being saved and closes it to those not being saved. So we see there's so many things jam-packed just in those three descriptions of who Jesus is. And just a word of application for us as we think about these things, because it's easy for us to look at these things and kind of breeze past them. Okay, let's get to the, let's get to the good stuff. What does Jesus say about the church? Wait, but this is the good stuff right here, right? And we need to really stop and reflect upon how Jesus describes himself. This is what the church of Philadelphia needed to hear, and this is what we need to hear today in our time. And what we're presented here with, as I've talked about before, as we've seen these descriptions of Jesus, we're presented with a very different Jesus that we're often presented with in the modern evangelical church or in the culture, what we might call the wimpy Jesus, the cool dude Jesus, right? No, this is the Jesus who is exalted in glory. This is the Holy One whose eyes are like a flame like fire, right? This is the one who does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, who doesn't just try to save people if they would just let him. No, he is the sovereign savior of sinners, and he will accomplish his purposes, and we will have to stand before that Holy One and give an account, and give an account. So that's a great encouragement for us to understand exactly who Jesus is. That takes us to the second point, the commendation of Christ. He says, you know, I know your works. I know your works. What works? What works are those? Well, first, he starts out basically alluding to the works by describing what he's going to do. <laughs> he's opening a door that no one can shut. What door? What door is Jesus opening that no one can shut? Well, some commentators say, well, this is talking about heaven. 
So the, I'm opening the door to heaven for you Philadelphians that nobody can shut. Okay, I mean, that, that certainly does apply, but here I think it's something else that's in view. Here I think it's what we see in other places in Scripture, like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, frequently or on occasion speaks of this open door as an opportunity to see the gospel go forth with unique power, we might say. He says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for, e for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. We don't know for sure, but I can it just seems like the Church of Philadelphia would have that verse ringing in their ears as Jesus is telling them this. Because they're in a place where they are surrounded by adversaries. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to open a door for effective work. There's going to be something unusual that's going to happen here through the power of the Spirit. And so... The Lord's going to do the same for them as he did for the Apostle Paul, is the idea. Because they were faithful witnesses, which comes out in the next phrase. He knows, he says, that they have little power. Little power. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound like accommodation at first. You guys are a bunch of weaklings. <laughs> but it is. It's a, it's a good thing. When the Lord tells you you're a weakling, and I'll, I'll explain to you why in a minute. He says, little power yet kept his word and didn't deny his name. So I want to look, look, first of all, kept his word. It's interesting. Jesus basically equates his word to the word of God because the word that we're supposed to follow is the word of God. You kept my word. In other words, you listened. You didn't just merely uh, keep my word by the things that you said but by the things that you did. You talked the talk, and you walked the walk. You were the real deal. You were, as Paul says in one place, like living epistles, by your life, by your works, not just by your words. They were living examples, I think, of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Peter says in that text, and this would apply to all believers. But I think here the Philadelphia church is an example of this in terms of later on as you see in this passage. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, or a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is going to become important as we see what Jesus has to say about the synagogue of Satan that's there, right? And he's taking, he's taking language that was applied to Israel under the Old Covenant and applying it to believers in the new, the true spiritual Israel. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. You have received it. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Right? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Who are the Gentiles? It's anyone who does not trust in Christ as Savior regardless of their ethnic identity. 
honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That is a perfect picture of what the church of Philadelphia was, a perfect example. So they didn't deny his name. They professed it loudly, boldly, clearly, in a place where it was hated. And they didn't merely say that Caesar isn't Lord. They said, Caesar isn't Lord, and oh, by the way, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you must serve him. And so they kept his word. And then Jesus says, they have little power. How, how are they able to keep God's word? How are they able to do those things if they had little power? Well, the text doesn't tell us explicitly here, so we have to go to other portions of Scripture. And I think we could say is that they didn't play lip service to what Jesus says when he says, you can do nothing apart from me. Like, the, the point here is, is that they really believed that. <laughs> they really understood. I can't do anything apart from Jesus. I'm weak. I'm feeble. I'm frail in myself. With Paul, they believed that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I refuse to boast in myself, when I refuse to boast in my gifts, when I understand it, but for the grace of God, so go I, and, and I desperately need God's grace and his spirit in my life, or I can't do anything for him. And that all that I am is because of his grace, and I have no room to boast for anything, because it's all because of his grace and spirit working in me and through me for his glory. Now, you see, that's where the Lord wants us. This is what enabled them to keep the word. This is what enabled them to not deny the name. Joel Beakey puts it well. He says, quote, as long as you flaunt your gifts as a Christian, as long as you trust in your organization, your manpower, your numbers, or whatever, you will never be of any use to Christ. You must learn to say with Paul, it is when you are weak that you're strong. Every single day. Where do you express that? Where is the first place that you actually say and are, are real with the fact that you're a weakling in yourself? Prayer. In prayer, we're saying, I can't. That's why we need to pray. And it's amazing to me how prayerless we are as God's people. Do we really believe that we have little power, that we're weak. I think there's a direct connection between what's my prayer life look like, <laughs> right? What am I trusting in? Am I putting my trust in resources, in my gifts, in my abilities, in my resourcefulness? It's prayer. His word. So we see here, we have a stellar commendation, right? It's a stellar commendation. I remember in the military, you know, you would, you would get awards, commendations, medals, the commendation medal for doing years of good service, and you'd get the medal, and 
there would be no rebuke after that, so <laughs> you would get that. And that's kind of what you have here. They get this medal of commendation. But here's the thing. They weren't a perfect church. As our own confession tells us, to, to, to paraphrase, the best churches among us on earth are filled with imperfections. Why are they filled with imperfections? Because they're filled with us. <laughs> that's why. Filled with imper imperfections. And that's the same for Philadelphia, and they would have gladly acknowledged that. But unlike the other churches, their lives weren't marked by sin, but by holiness. Unlike the other churches, they didn't abandon the love that they had at first. They didn't compromise with the culture or put up with false teachers and Jezebels. They didn't drift into the spiritual slumber. They were awake. Now, none of that means that they could boast. Look at how good we are. Look at how great we are. We didn't do the things that the church of Ephesus did. We didn't do what Thyatira did. We didn't do all those things. We got the commendation. Look at how great we are. No. They couldn't boast. They couldn't rest in their laurels either. They needed to hear the warnings that Christ gave to the other churches as well. In each letter, Christ ends by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In other words, pay attention, you other guys over here. It's like when you line your kids up, <laughs> if you have multiple kids. We only had the one son. But from the parents that tell me, like, Timothy, I'm sure you understand. You go, okay, kids, you're paying attention to what's going on here, right? In the military, it was the same way. Pay attention. See what's happening here. Listen. Take heed lest you fall would be the message for the Philadelphia church. Take heed lest you fall. Now, just a, a point of application here for us. You know, we see churches that have problems morally, churches that might have problems doctrinally, and, you know, we... There is a place where we're, we should call those things out and say, well, that's not right. There's a place for that. But we need to do so not in a spirit of self-righteous pride. And God forbid that we ever think that we're above such things. I can think of just a couple of examples in my own life as we've seen things over the past few years, especially we've seen the whole, the advent of what we'll just call wokeism, as we've talked about before, and how it's flooded into the church. And I remember talking with some guys, and we were like, how could that happen? How could this happen here, in, in, in these churches here, with, with that pastor over there? And then I remember thinking, and I, I told those guys, yeah, we need to be careful because we're not immune to that. And then I'm familiar with churches that have gone through moral failure. And I remember it's easy for us to say, well, I would never do something like that. Oh, yeah? The moment we start thinking like that, the moment you know we're in trouble. A haughty spirit comes before a fall. I'm just as capable of, of falling as anybody else. That's why we need prayer. That's why we need to keep fixing our gaze upon Christ and Him crucified and resting in Him. And the coming around brothers and sisters and, and being encouraged and, and growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ and, and walking humbly before the Lord. We're not better than anybody else. But for the grace of God, so go I. 
It's true. I am what I am by God's grace, and I'm, he's the one who has to sustain me and preserve me. That has to be our attitude. And I think that was the attitude for the church of Philadelphia. And so, third point here, the promise of Christ. Verse 9, just as the church of Smyrna had suffered persecution at the hands of the Jewish community there, so in Philadelphia. And Jesus likewise calls them a synagogue of Satan. Meek and mild Jesus. <laughs> Who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Wow. Spiritually, those who put their faith in Christ alone for salvation are the true Jews. The true sons of Abraham. The true people of God. And those who do not, spiritually, are Gentiles. Whether they're ethnic Jews or not. And so these ethnic Jews are spiritual Gentiles. And he calls them a synagogue of Satan. The spirit of the evil one is holding sway over them to a powerful degree and is, is fueling hatred in their hearts of the believers there in Philadelphia, God's true chosen people. Now, a couple of applications here for us to think about. First of all, I mentioned this when we talked about the church of Smyrna. There's only two religions in the world. That's it. There's Christ and there's Antichrist. There's light, there's darkness. There's life, there's death. If it's not biblical Christianity, if it's not Christ, then ultimately it's a synagogue of Satan. That's the reality. And I know that sounds harsh, but I don't think Jesus is too concerned about that. And I think we need to have an understanding about that about what the truth is. It's Christ, and if it's not Christ, what is it? That which is opposed to Christ, Antichrist, Satan, life or death, light or darkness, truth or lie, and you're serving one or the other. Somebody is your Lord. If it's not Christ, who is it? Here, let me give you a passage here that kind of fleshes this out a little bit. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the reality. That's what's going on. And now Jesus says here, he calls him a synagogue of Satan. Yes, God chose Israel as a nation through whom he would reveal his word, reveal himself. It would be through them that Messiah would come. But there's only one true spiritual people of God, not two. And the ethnic Jews who rejected Christ are lost. They need the gospel. And they need people to bring them the gospel. 
so they could be saved. Now, Jesus says something here that's earth-shattering. Surprise, Jesus says something that's earth-shattering. <laughs> Behold, I will make them come and bow down, come and bow down before your feet. That's the open door that Jesus was speaking of. He will empower them by his spirit and through their witness. Many of these ones who were vehemently opposed to Christ were their adversaries, were bringing persecution against them. Think of a, a place, a synagogue filled with Saul's of Tarsus. Remember Saul of Tarsus, which became the Apostle Paul? He was going about having Christians murdered and thrown in prison. This is the kind, this is the people we're talking about. He's going to empower them, and through their witness, he's going to bring many of those people to Christ. And they will be so overwhelmed by the grace of Christ that they will come and bow down before these believers, before their feet, not in worship, but in gratitude. Gratitude for what? For sharing the good news. Thank you for loving us enough, despite the way we treated you, despite our, our adversarial position to you, despite the suffering we've inflicted upon you. Thank you for loving us enough to bring the gospel to us so that we might be saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in and by Christ alone, all to God's glory alone. And we see here the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 60, the sons of those who afflicted you shall, shall come bending low to you. This is speaking to Israel. And all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Takes that and applies it to who? The new covenant people of God. The true spiritual Israel. That raises a question for us here, and that is this. How in the world does the synagogue of Satan, these ones who are so zealous and opposed to Christ, how would they ever come to Christ? Okay, the door's open. Go and preach the gospel. But how do you know they're going to come to Christ? And how will they come to Christ? Well, the only answer that we can give is the sovereign irresistible, explosive, regenerating, resurrecting power of the gospel of Christ and God's grace and spirit that removes stony hearts and replaces them with hearts of flesh. Hearts of flesh whereby they cry out to the Lord to save them. Now I can think of a couple examples that we think of. You've got to understand this group of people, to them, would be like, there's no way that these people are ever going to come to faith in Christ. These are the tough nuts. <laughs> and I can think of a few examples in our world of what we might call the tough nuts. Right? There's Muslims, fundamentalist, radical mu Muslims, the mullahs in Iran. Can you see them coming to faith in Christ? Ki Kim Jong-il in, in North Korea. Zizi Zipan guy in China. <laughs> My apologies for messing up the name. I can never pronounce the name. Or we think here in our country, LGBTQ people. 
radical atheist. How, you know, those are the tough nuts. There's no way that they'll ever come to faith in Christ. Well, here's the thing. If our confidence was in the free will of man, then we would have no hope because man is spiritually dead in his trespasses and sins, as we just heard in Ephesians chapter 2. And he's a willing slave. Sinful man in himself will never, ever respond savingly to the gospel. And so our confidence isn't in man's free will or his cooperation with grace, but in the sovereign grace and power of God who raises spiritually dead sinners to spiritual life and doesn't try to save people, but actually saves them. See, that's why we don't sing amazing free will, how sweet the sound. (laughs) We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved The grace saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Found by what? My free will? No, by God's grace. I was blind, but now I see. How? By my free will? No, by God's grace. His spirit, the resurrecting power of God working in my life. That's how. By the hands of a sovereign creator who reached into this blind person and gave him eyes to see. That's how. So there's no room for boasting anymore. And so Jesus is saying, listen, I've opened the door and there's no power in heaven or on earth or in hell that can shut it up, that can stop it, that can close it, that can stop me from saving whosoever I've determined to save, and their salvation is 100% guaranteed by me because it's by my power alone, not theirs, because I am the I am. I am the Holy One. I am the True One. I am the one who opens and shuts as I see fit because I'm God. And that's the hope we have as we bring the gospel to people. As you go forth to witness to your friends and your co-workers and your family members, what is the hope that you have? How do you pray for people to be saved? Oh, Lord, I pray that somehow by, their, that they, by a free decision that they would come to know you. No, you say, Lord, I pray that you would, that you would bring them to their knees, that you would cause them to come to you, that you would take out their stony heart. That's how we pray. That's how we pray. Our confidence rests not in the powers of persuasion or man's will, but the explosive power of God's word and spirit and grace alone. Alone. And that applies not just for the tough cases. (laughs) How in the world did somebody like you or me ever get saved? Why are you sitting here in church and your unbelieving neighbor isn't? See, you and I were just as dead in our trespasses and sins as the most radicalized Muslim, the most zealous Jew, the most vocal homosexual or trans person, or any other person you can think of. All of us are just as much a miracle of divine grace as anyone else. And so we need to remember that, first of all, because that's going to, what is that going to, 
cause for us. It's gonna, it should bring us to our knees in thanks and praise. Thank you, Lord, for saving a sinner like me. I couldn't save myself. But then I can look out at my friends and my neighbors and my coworkers, and I recognize, oh, it's not just radical Muslims. They can't save themselves, but neither can these good people here. They need Christ. They need, they need a miracle of divine grace. Only God can raise them up. And then the Lord says that these Jews would understand Christ's love for them. They're going to fall at your feet and they're going to understand the love that Christ has for you. Imagine that. The love that Christ, what a, what a word of encouragement. Jesus loves them. Right? So when you're going through any number of difficulties, never forget the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Right? The love that he has for you, has for his people. And never forget that that love wasn't given to those who deserved it. <laughs> Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us in this side. While we were yet sinners, when we were yet God-hating rebels, Christ died for the ungodly. On the cross, he took all of our God-hating rebellion upon himself and he bore the penalty that we deserved so that we could be made his children, so that we could be called by his name. And that was the love that these persecutors of Christ experienced as well. They came to experience it. And were so overwhelmed that they came and they fell down at the feet of those people. Right? Reminded of a story, you all probably know the story, Corey Tamboom. She was in a concentration camp in the World War II. Her family were Christians. She watched her sister waste away in the concentration camp. Finally, you know, Corey survived. She got released. And then she was giving a talk somewhere about the forgiveness of Christ. Unbeknownst to her, until she saw him, there was, in the crowd, there was a, one of the former Nazi guards. She recognized him. Then he came up to her after the meeting because he recognized her. And he says... How grateful I am for your message, Freiling. To that, as you say, he, he washed my sins away. You mentioned Robinsbrook in your talk. I was a guard there, but I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. Will you forgive me? Corey confesses her struggle. I can't forgive this man. She finally reached out her hand and grasped his, and she says, I will forgive you with all of my heart, brother. And then she writes, quote, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Right? That's it. Philadelphia. They endured horrific persecution at the hands of these people. These people come to them. 
You can imagine the emotion they must have felt. They all had an experience of the love of Christ that overcomes all that. Then in verse 10, we see the promises that because they listened to his word about patient endurance, Jesus says, listen, you're going to suffer, okay? That's part of the deal. You're going to suffer on account of the gospel. They did that without compromise, resting in the power of Christ. He's going to keep them from the hour of trial. I don't think this is talking about what's going to happen at the end of time. I think it's something that's going to happen soon in their lifetime. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to come quickly, and I'm going to be with you. And that takes us to the last point here. Verse 11, he's coming soon. He's coming to be with them during their hour of trial, to preserve them. And he tells them, hold fast, cling tightly to me, so that no one seizes your crown. Because the devil's at work, the enemy's at work, so you have to be proactive. Cling tightly to me. Yes, we're saved by God's grace alone. We're passive in that initial salvation. But now we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're, we're called to be active, not passive. Recognizing that it's Christ who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. So we rest in Christ, and the resting in Christ is an active resting whereby we make right use of his means of grace. What are the means of grace? Prayer, his word, us, the church. And then he's with us, empowering us for service. Not only a crown, but we see in the place, this place known for its earthquakes, Jesus says in verse 12, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar. Immovable. You will never be able to go out of it. Eternally secure. Then he says, verse 3, then he says, uh, he says, the three names will be written upon them. It's interesting. Timothy was talking in Sunday school of the Great Commission. In the Great Commission, go make disciples of the nations. And then you make disciples. The first thing on the list is, we think, teaching them to obey. No, it's baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But notice, you're baptized in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we're baptized in the name of the triune God, we are given a new identity in Christ. And then those who believe are declared righteous in Christ, forgiven in Christ. They are in union with Christ. And that which is declared of us at that time will be openly declared at the final judgment, at the end of time. That name, these names that you see here, will be written upon us. In other words, the permanence of the name will be forever made known because it was permanently imprinted upon us by the indelible ink of the blood of the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord of glory. That's why I love what Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Bring us to a close, apart from Christ, we are all a part of the synagogue of Satan. We all had the name lost sinner written over us. But God, 
But Christ, the Holy One, the True One, He came, and by His death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, He has opened wide the door to His kingdom, and the call goes out to every person, to, to every person everywhere, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so if you never have, I plead with you to do that. Turn from your sins, trust in Christ alone for your right standing before a holy God. Go through the door that is Christ. And if you have, let us take hold of who the Lord is and all of his exalted glory, his holiness, his power. He opens and no one can shut. He closes and no one can open. And so let us go forth then in the world to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, declaring his word with, with boldness and endeavoring by God's grace and spirit to live in a manner worthy of this gospel. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, to live in conformity to it as we rest and trust in you alone, the power of your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.